Good morning, and welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. And in this episode, we tackle director Satoshi Kon's sophomore film and love letter to classic Japanese cinema, Millennium Actress. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4, Rolling. Millennium Actress opens in space with the launch of some far-future spacecraft. The astronaut piloting the ship says that she must go deep into space, though she will never return, to search for a mysterious him. But that's a psych-out. The space launch is actually the climax of a video being watched by Genya Tachibana, a television presenter. Genya and his cameraman, Kyoji Aida, are making a documentary about the life of Chiyoko Fujiwara. Chiyoko is the star of the film that Genya was watching, and many others. It turns out Genya is a massive fan of Chiyoko's and founded his own studio just to make this documentary. Genya and his cameraman travel to Chiyoko's rural estate, where the septuagenarian actress has lived in anonymity for years, alone except for her housekeeper. She never grants interviews, but has only agreed to meet Genya because he has a gift for her, a key which, according to her, opens the most important thing there is. Chiyoko then tells her life story. She was born during the Great Kanto Earthquake on the day her father died and was an adolescent during the rise of Imperial Japan pre-World War II. She was courted by talent scouts as a teen, but her mother rejects the studio that wanted to put her in a movie, preferring that Chiyoko be a homemaker. As Chiyoko tells her story, it seems as though the documentarians are following her through her past. The same day that she meets the talent scouts, Chiyoko literally runs into a mysterious artist who captures her attention, but is fleeing from a scar-faced police officer. Also, he's wounded. Chiyoko helps the man dodge the police and offers him shelter. Later, the still-injured artist leaves to help his friends fighting in Manchuria against Imperial Japan and fascism but not before showing Chiyoko a key around his neck. The two then pinky swear that they will meet again someday, no matter what happens. When Shoko returns later, she finds the key and the artist's bloody bandages in the snow, but he's nowhere to be found. She races to find him at the train station in the first of her iconic running sequences. Unfortunately, Chiyoko barely misses the train to Manchuria. She then decides that she will become an actress in order to shoot her first film in Manchuria and on that shoot maybe find the lost artist. In Manchuria, she meets the starlet Iko and aspiring director Junichi, who take interest in her key and mentor her in the art of acting, which she clearly has a knack for. Chiyoko is then referred to a fortune teller by Eiko. That fortune teller informs her that the artist is in northern Manchuria. On her way there, bandits attack Chiyoko's train. Chiyoko barely escapes with her life. That bandit attack becomes a scene from a Kurosawa-esque samurai war epic, which Chiyoko starred in. 
In that epic, Chiyoko's character is cursed by a ghostly woman to live forever and never be united with her true love. At this point in time, Genya and Kyoji also become characters in her films, following her through her career. In some of these films, Aiko plays her opponent in period epics, where they play ninjas, geishas, noblewomen, and jailed prostitutes. Typically, a bumbling Genya rescues Chiyoko just after Aiko puts her in peril, only to be thwarted by the scar-faced police officer. Chiyoko and her mother later have a confrontation about Chiyoko's career during the real-life firebombing of Tokyo. During that conversation, Chiyoko considers abandoning her career, but later in the rubble, she finds a picture of her in a film on a uh, standing wall inscribed with, we'll meet again. This faint hope keeps Chiyoko going into the post-war era. She continues the interview, though her health and memory are beginning to fail her. It turns out Genya was a former co-worker of Chiyoko's in a junior position. He never advanced his career while working under Junichi, who at the same time was unsuccessfully courting the Millennium Actress. Not long after, on set with Aiko, Chiyoko realizes that her key has gone missing. The film crew stops shooting to look for it, including Genya, but are unable to find it. Chiyoko marries Junichi, becoming a homemaker as her mother wanted, until one day, while cleaning, she finds the key. It turns out Aiko had stolen the key at Junichi's behest. He blackmailed her into it, having found out that the fortune teller from Manchuria was hired by Aiko to send Chiyoko on the wrong track. Chiyoko leaves Junichi, then is confronted at the studio by the scar-faced policeman, now an old wounded combat veteran. The scar-faced man is trying to atone for his sins and gives her a letter from the artist who was tortured and killed after his arrest. Chiyoko goes on one more mad run to Hokkaido to find the place where the artist made his painting. Chiyoko's final run brings the story back to the set of the sci-fi movie, which Genya was watching at the start of the story. The rocket from the opening almost takes off before another earthquake hits the set of that movie. It turns out, at that time, Genya saved Chiyoko from falling debris. However, during that fracas, Chiyoko lost the key once again. Genya later found it, and he had it all this time. Just as Chiyoko recognizes Genya for who he was, another earthquake hits, landing the fragile Chiyoko at last on her deathbed. Before passing away... God, I'm getting choked up reading this! <laughs> Fuck. Before passing away, Chiyoko admits that though she never caught her mysterious love, it was the pursuit of him that she truly loved. As she dies, the rocket finally takes off. Wow. I get emotional just talking about this movie. Yeah. I, it's so interesting because I feel like this is... And I don't say this to um, denigrate your work recapping the film, but the recap does not even begin to get into 
it, it cannot just by uh, dint of the medium capture how emotional this movie is and how uh, just overwhelming with feeling the final third of it becomes. Um, yeah. It is a, it's a movie that I think on paper is, is maybe the simplest of any of cons. The plot is very much like a straight line and that's almost kind of deliberately the point. The fact that it's this, this really sort of bare bones concept that is just executed in such a sublime um, and moving way. I'm hope I hope that if you are listening to this podcast now that you've already watched the movie ahead of time, um, and so you know what we're talking about, and you know that I feel, now I feel like the last two episodes I've I've opened by talking shit on your recaps, and I apologize. Um, I, yeah, what, what's what's your story with this movie? Like, how when did you first see it, and how do you feel about it now? Here's here's my history with Millennium Actress. I just before I tell my story, I just want to say. And I, I'm just, I know I said this at the end of the last episode, but I do want to say this. This is my favorite cone thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think this movie is an absolute fucking masterpiece. Uh, 10 out of 10. I love this film for all the reasons that you mentioned for how like emotional it gets at the end, but it's still like intricately put together. I've adored it since I first saw it. So I got this movie in high school just knowing that Satoshi Kon directed it. And I knew that its, mm-hmm. its reviews were also quite, quite good. Um, and I feel really bad that I sold that DreamWorks DVD that I had when I was in college because it's worth an ass load of money now. Um, oh, Millennium Actress, like a lot of Cone's movies, is like finding a physical copy of it is like very difficult, or at least the originals was very difficult. But that that movie, I'd seen some of Perfect Blue, as I said in the last episode, I couldn't finish it because it it made me feel funny things, right? But mm-hmm. like I I knew a, a a smart person, a talented storyteller had made it just from the first bit that I saw that I could could get through, right? So getting the millennium actress DVD was not a hard decision, but I was like not prepared for how much teenage me just fell into this movie. Um, I showed it to my friends. I believe this is the anime movie we did for former podcast guest, Logan Taylor's film club when I was in high school. Very appropriately. Yeah. This is a, if the, ever there were an anime for a general purpose film club, it's this one. Right. And, um, People did not like I remember like in, I was the only person who was like into animation and Japanese animation specifically in that film club. People were very hesitant to watch this movie. And mm. I, I do remember like even then like this motley assortment of like 17 year old suburban kids was like that was a good movie. I don't I don't think any of them like became cone diehards from that experience. But I, I just thought it was pretty impressive that people of that age who had expressed outright disinterest in the form like walked away from it with like a general rosy disposition yeah i that's so interesting to me because i saw this after i saw perfect blue so this is like when i was in my early 20s and i kind of didn't i liked it i was impressed by it it did a lot of the formally tricky stuff that 
I, you know, knew and loved from watching Paranoia Agent and Perfect Blue. But I felt I was like maybe a bit too emotionally blocked up at the time to really connect with it deeply. You know, I had like sort of an aversion to like stuff that could be considered Oscar bait, which I think this movie is like the, the ideal version of what could be an Oscar bait movie in a lot of ways in that it's so it's such a love letter to to movies as a as an art form specifically the history of of japanese filmmaking which i don't think i quite appreciated at the time you know i i was like oh that's a that's a throne of blood reference but beyond that i didn't really get what a lot of this movie was going for sure and i i think that i i was just sort of like having been introduced through paranoia agent and perfect blue i had sort of in my mind built this idea of Cohen being a bit more of an edgelord dorm movie poster guy than this movie. Like this movie counteracts that particular view of his career in like such dramatic terms that I don't think I was quite on the wavelength, but uh, ever since I, we decided we were going to do this season and I've rewatched it twice. It like bowled me over both times. I it's, it is absolutely a masterpiece. I, I'm not putting it at a at a five on Letterboxd quite yet, but I just bumped it up to four point five. So that's it'll be there the next time I watch it for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. I, okay. Well, so first of all, like you can't. Okay. There's two things I want to say that are only tangentially related to Millennium Actress, but that I think are interesting responses to what you just said. First mm-hmm. of all, let's just be honest. You do not need to be at a four point uh, a five point oh to actually be perfect. The five point oh, the perfect five, is reserved for for like only your most favorite shit. And if you break that rule, uh, get off the internet. It, this is this is just the unspoken law. I think carved in stone in the annals of of like being a critic of any kind. I think even though numerical mm-hmm. scores are like bad. It, it should be a personal rating system or no rating system at all. Like it right. only depends. Like It's like for me to keep track of shit. It's not for the general public. You know what I mean? Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. So, yeah, you can. I think there's perfect things that aren't like a five and like Millennium Actress is not a, is not a five for me in that sense. It is not one of my, I sold the DVD, right? It's not one of those things right. that I was like, I will take this with me for forever. But I always love watching it. That said, I also had the same experience you did where uh, these last two rewatches while prepping for doing this with you, I think even had a greater impact than when I was younger. And so I wanted to ask Ian, do you cry at movies? Yes. um, Probably more than I would like to, honestly, like sometimes I'm annoyed by like, even if I am not necessarily enjoying a movie, it can pull it on me and I will cry and then I'll be angry at myself for crying. Cause it's like, this movie isn't even worth these tears. Right. Um, but it, it kind of like, it, that's changed. I feel like there was like a moment in my twenties where like m- watching stuff with full emotional investment clicked for me. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to kind of like really give myself over to the experience. And like, oh, I'm trying to remember there's this one, anime that like i don't even remember what it was called it was this kind of like cutesy slice of life high school story that like me and my girlfriend were watching at the time we watched the whole thing last episode i just started bawling just because it was the last episode and like right endings will make me cry and then she was she never let me let that one down uh if she's listening which she might be 
please feel free to remind me what anime that was. And was it? You can make fun of me for it. For, again. it, it was it Azumanga Dayo? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it wasn't okay. that. But uh, that's a that's a good one too. Well, that one's going to come up again again later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was that's the only I think that's the only slice of life thing I've ever seen. So like now, like I when I, when someone says a slice of life anim, anime, the only thing I think of is Azumanga Dayo, which is probably like wrong like i think that's wrong but yeah, and, it's not, not quite the i feel like if i'm remembering correctly osmonga dio is like a much more like humor kind of driven yeah show it's, yeah. and it's fast anyway this isn't about yeah. osmonga dio but like that that and many other stories are going to come up while we're talking about this um i had the same experience we're in my mid-20s something happened and i just get weepy and um, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know why, but I feel the need to hide it from my partner. Like I was I was getting weepy during Dune and I'm like, this is this is the least emotional movie like ever. It's an amazing <laughs> film. Like go see Dune part one. I think it's really, really good. Um, I'm not a hater, but like, is it emotional? No. Like, not at all. Like, why am I getting, like, little pearls in the corner of my eyes for Zendaya? This is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for not even, like, a full scene of Zendaya, just some dream sequences. Yeah. um, I think she probably had, like, an extra play her as as much as she, like, played her character in the movie. (laughs) Anyway, I swear, this is a podcast about Millennium Actress. (laughs) Well, how appropriate that we spend some uh, some digressionary time just talking about other movies that we like, because I think that there's a way of looking at this movie. And I think we've alluded to it over the course of this conversation as as Khan kind of like doing a quick course on Japanese cinema history, like Chiyoko, her character is like loosely based on uh, Setsuko Hara, who was a, a very famous actress in the sort of mid-century Uh, Japanese film industry and this movie feels like it's kind of doing a quick review of like every major genre from the mid-century to plot wise like basically until the end of the 60s in in Japanese filmmaking Uh, because it's implied that uh, Chiyoko was like basically missing in action for 30 years and then showed up in the late 90s which is when this movie sort of ostensibly is taking place. Right. To be to be totally accurate, the the period we're talking about is what's known as the Showa era. Mm-hmm. And the the era is named after the emperor. So like the the Showa era, I think ends in the 70s. I only know this because it's how they separate the Godzilla movie timelines. Um mm-hmm. Appropriately enough, there is a fun little Godzilla reference in Melina, yeah. and it's cute. She takes the cute photo where she's doing the monster claws next to the the suit. I was like, I, I was like, fan service, right? I'm like, it's easy, it's the low hanging fruit, but you pick it, Satoshi Kon, mm-hmm. you pick it for me, and I will eat it. The, that was actually on this rewatch, uh, and this kind of gets into one of the, the big things that I really, really love about this movie. Is it was actually the two um, like pseudo Godzilla scenes because there's the one where she's taking the picture next to the the rubber suit, and then there's the one that takes place loosely in the world of the Godzilla movie that she it was in, right? Where she's like running towards the monster because she's always running towards something, right? Um, and the fact that Cone, who I think has this reputation and like we talked about it a lot in the last episode of being kind of like anti 
fandom in a lot of ways, not really having like the brightest like look uh, at how people engage with art and the kind of like uh, the way that that sort of thing can dominate one's personality and take over one's life. The fact that he includes because there's like and I mean, I know Godzilla is in the Criterion collection, but there's a way of looking at this kind of movie and it being like this, you know, love letter to like Kurosawa and Ozu and all of this like really serious kind of adult filmmaking. And I think it's just great that he also included the the movie with the big lizard. Right. In it. Not just because it's like essential to the, the Japanese film industry and Japan's, you know, it's one of the most iconic things to come out of Japan, period. Uh, but it's just something that's like all movies are worth celebrating in the way that this movie celebrates movies. And that's like such a different feeling to experience than Perfect Blue, which I think has like such a kind of like uh, cynical and negative view about art. This one is like the exact opposite. And so anytime like the big green guy showed up, I was like, oh, even Godzilla's here. <laughs> it made, like it warmed my heart. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the the contrast to Perfect Blue, because with, like these two movies are. And this was also by design, but they're the perfect a counterpart and complement right. to, one, to one another. They're it's both, totally Jungian, you know, yeah. like that that idea that we brought up earlier of like the shadow self and the self. It's like these two movies have that same kind of relationship to each other. Yeah, that was intentional. I was going to say this for later, but I do. I've uh, I do have one quote from Khan. I will say I have fewer quotes this episode because there's just less about the production of Millennium Actress out there. Like, I think this will be a, mm-hmm. a quicker episode than the Perfect Blue one was just because for whatever reason people remember perfect blue, but not millennium actress. And maybe that has something to do with like, uh, this thing you were alluding to earlier, right? Like the dorm core-ness, like the desire for something twisted and, and, and kind of fucked up. Right. Which I also mm-hmm. have, which is why it's weird to me that this is my favorite cone. Cause it is far and away the one that is like least aimed at me. You'd think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, that cone quote is, Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress are two sides of the same coin, I think. When I was making Perfect Blue, I thought it would be a positive film, but little by little it became negative, darker. That exhausted me in a way. When I started working with the producer on Millennium Actress, based on the premise that he mentioned before, he had the intention of making two films, like Sisters, through the depiction of the relationship between admirer and idol. And so mm-hmm. to him, they, they are like the dark side and, and, and the light side of that relationship. Right. So I think we can, it might be helpful to look at some of the doubling between the two and like point out the similarities. Sure. Uh, like you could sort of look at uh, Chioko and uh, Mima as being the central figures in both the sort of characters that are in the eyes of fame, but are doing it for much different reasons, right? Like Mima is has no agency until the end of the movie. The movie is about her gaining the agency to become the actress that she wants to be. Right. Uh, Actually, we don't even know if she's an actress by the end of the movie. We just know that she's famous and we presume that she's self-actualized and, you know, she's wearing sunglasses. So I guess we can assume she's making movies and TV. This is the late nineties. Like, I don't know if you, if you, if we'd gone from, you know, like you have a career and you're a celebrity for that, for just like a celebrity for the sake of being a celebrity. Like, I'm not sure that she <laughs> could have done the Kylie Jenner. 
Right. In yeah. the in the nineties. But if they were but like that would be the truly dark ending of Perfect Blue, if you ask me. But I agree. <laughs> I, I, there's part of me that wishes that of course a lot of me wishes that Cohn was still around. But I would I would have liked for him to have done a third now when when we have modern celebrity. Like I would love Cohn's Jenner movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 totally. And Shioko by the other uh by the other hand she actively pursues fame, not to be famous, but because she wants to increase her chances of meeting, you know, this uh, this mysterious painter character who we don't even we never really see the face of like the most of his face that we see is potentially not even really him. Like it's the the samurai and it's not even really a samurai at that point. It's like this movie jumps around in timelines a lot. So it's really difficult to keep track like of which part of Japanese history you're in at any given time. Point being like the relationship to fame is completely different. Uh, both of them kind of become unknowable to us in a similar way. Like, I think it's interesting that like we don't see Mima's self-actualized career after perfect blue. Cause it's on her own terms. And Chiyoko leaves the movie industry once she's, kind of reached an end point of like what she wanted out of it, you know, um, which is a disillusionment, but is, you know, it's a, it's a self-made choice. Yeah. I think there's also a parallel between if we're looking at the, the, these, the sort of relationship between like idol and admirer, right. Then Genya is like about as far away from Mimania as you could possibly get. Genya is one of my favorite satoshi Kon characters he's so terrific i love genya too and it it it, it, it's sort of it's sort of funny i think one of the big differences that makes this movie one of the reasons i like it better than perfect blue is genya not just as a character but because i think that between the two movies he really upgraded the way that he could tell stories through his like montage and hyper realism segments and i think that's because you have genya as chiyoko's interlocutor and also he has ida as his own interlocutor and so like Mm -hmm. it's the characters are critiquing the story as it goes which also clarifies the story right yes there's a really great moment where like after there's you know there's that like the the you know, like, no, like, lady, you must go on without me. Like, after Genya gets, like, shot as right. they're escaping Throne of Blood and going into, like, Lone Wolf and Cub or whatever movie that is happening right. next. The, the Zatoichi, um, the blind swordsman, yeah. Right, yeah. And and it cuts back to the, the room that they're interviewing Shoko in. And at one point she says, like, is it okay if I tell the story this way? Right. And, and Genya's just like, we'll take it however you're giving it to it. And I love that as like a little <laughs> wink to the audience to be like, look, we're going to tell this story in a very strange manner right. where you're never going to be entirely sure if what you're watching is Chiyoko remembering her own life or remembering her roles in the movies or if it's going to be, and this happens occasionally, Genya remembering his role in making the movies as well. So there's like... Right several layers of reality that are being intermingled. And there was that quote that you read about how Khan doesn't, didn't think that it's actually that complicated about like what is real and what isn't in perfect blue. 
this one is entirely about the complication and the unreality and the blurring of those lines. Like, I think it's really difficult to pull those things apart and intentionally so because it's Chiyoko telling us her life story. Right. Through this lens. Right. You know, it's I mean, it's also interesting because it, it, in here's a here's a sort of a difference between the two, but a, a, an interesting dynamic I like in perfect blue. Mima has an arc. Mm-hmm. She she you know she begins idealistic but but afraid and becomes like jaded but also strong by the mm-hmm. end right she she goes through a change Chioko is is actually like I think a pretty static main character right the thing that makes her compelling is that she's driven by the same thing for the entirety of the movie right and the only thing that changes is her understanding of what that thing is and like her relationship to that drive rather right. than the drive itself. And, and, and R is an audience's relationship to the drive. You'd think he's making an argument about mm-hmm. this, 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 uh, the romanticism and how creativity to him is like ser- seemingly like intrinsically linked to this sort of like mad romanticism, which mm-hmm. is oddly sentimental. Right. But like the arcs, Genya has the arc. And Ida has the arc. And, you know, you'd think Ida's like, he's in a lot of the movie, but his contribution is very small. But he he does have this, like, compelling arc where he goes from, like, being the Satoshi Khan that you think from Perfect Blue who thinks that Genya's fandom <laughs> is is weak sauce. And right. then by the end, him being like, you're a really sweet guy. Like, I'm glad I spent this afternoon interviewing this dying actress with you. Like, this is a cool project. He goes from not liking the project to being like, yeah, this is worth it. Right. They they sort of point out that he's younger than Genya and, of course, much younger than Chiyoko. And so there's a way of looking at this movie as, like, resensitizing the desensitized Gen X filmmaker. Right. You know? Right. Like this, this, like, long-haired gen x cameraman who is like so over it at the start is given this like history lesson in the medium and in the history of the country itself and leaves with like a much deeper understanding and a much fuller heart even though we don't really have any interior life beyond his like cracking jokes along the along the way right Multiple people have pointed out that that cameraman seems to be sort of like a stand-in for Cone. I mean, I just mm-hmm. said it, but also they look fairly similar, right? Right. And and they both seem to have this sort of like wry winking attitude. And and Cone was a jaded Gen Xer, right? But as it as it turns out, uh, that may be even like more true than you'd think at the outset, because in making this movie, Cone also also had to have his own like come to Jesus about like the importance and greatness of classic Japanese cinema, which is mm-hmm. weird. We don't need to run into production, but that, that comes in. It's, it's so fascinating to me, like the way that, that, that character reflects Kon so, so deeply. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to say there's a few other like little doubles, like the fact that there's like an older actress that's like uh-huh. both intimidating and kind of a mentor character. Mm hmm. There's like the relationship between the director. He's sort of like a stand in for us of the whole range of like creepy older men in perfect blue. That's kind of like taking advantage of the situation. You know, he's we meet him when he's clearly an adult and Chiyoko is a, a literal child. Right. And so the fact that they end up getting married is like he kind of 
skeevy. Yeah, in a post-Weinstein world. Yeah, very true. Maybe maybe one of Khan's more sinister villains, actually, in retrospect. What I th- what I like, though, is that the, uh, the Aiko character sort of is simultaneously trying to warn obliquely, uh, to warn Shioko that, like, this guy's kind of a creep, like, don't get too close to him. Right. But also sends her on the wild goose chase into northern Manchuria as right. a way of, like as an act of jealousy. So even that's like, Oh, that's like a, a multifaceted and kind of interesting character. And her like final remarks of like, I'm, I don't even have the strength to be angry at you anymore. Is like, Oh, right. this is like a human being. That's, that's cool. To be clear, tries to go get Chiyoko killed. Like my reading of that is like, sends her to Northern Manchuria because she's like, <laughs> I hope you get sacked by bandits. And she does like, right. that's, that's my interpretation of it. I also know that that I think you and I had a different reading, but when I every time I've seen this movie, I've thought the implication is that the fortune teller is Iko in disguise. Well, I think there's like a, a, a like split second blink and you miss it of like Iko looking around the corner from behind them that uh, Junichi like catches, uh, which is oh, why he does this sort of like double take. I see, and that's how he knows. And so it doesn't come out of nowhere where he's like, oh, I, I blackmailed Aiko into, into doing things. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I'm, I'm into it. It's part of, part of the tough thing with that is like Perfect Blue, these characters have their, their mirror image selves. But unlike mm-hmm. Perfect Blue, the mirror image selves also like change in period through the movies, right? Because like you see the, the witch lady, the old, the old woman from Throne of Blood, right? Right. So spooky. Um, but like later she shows up in the reflection of the the space helmet prop. She also shows up one more time before that when it's before Chioko decides to get married. And what I think is a, a pretty overt reference to uh, Late Spring, which is an Ozu film. Right. Um, the, the hairdo is just like very iconically uh, Satsuko Hara where she looks in the reflection of behind her mother of the glass that her, the painting that the artist is in right. and she sees the, the witch uh, from throne of blood, which is then, which is a setup for the third repetition of when right. she looks into the, the, the space helmet. Right. But that's reflecting different characters each time, right? It reflects Ico once and then it reflects, it reflects the mom one time and then it reflects Ico. Right. Mm-hmm. But the mom is also, another parallel to perfect blue because like the mom is a much smaller part, but the mom plays a similar role to, um, Rumi to Rumi. Yeah. Basically overbearing moms. What's going on with you, Satoshi Khan? (laughs) Um, I would like to point out as long as we're like, uh, psychoanalyzing, uh, Mr. Khan himself, that it's funny to me that the hot painter activist is from Hokkaido. Oh, Oh yeah. (laughs) Like it, come on, dude! Like this, Stephen King. Every main character needs to be a hit horror author. Same shit, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that is like okay, yeah, I'll accept it because it's also sort of implied that Hokkaido is literally the moon compared to the rest of Japan, and right. so like he gets a bit of like self ownage in there too, <laughs> right? I guess um, I didn't know this, but I guess that snow is super hard to animate. Hmm. And that so much of this movie, unlike Perfect Blue, takes place in in the snow, and that's going to come back in like later 
con things, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. little visual mo- motif of of his. It's fun that he develops it here with a character that has to paint things in snow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Like there's the, we should mention that this movie looks so much better than perfect blue. It's just, it's like watch them back to back, which funny thing, like I just, I texted Joseph about this before we started recording. If you watched perfect blue and millennium actress back to back, it would only take you 18 more minutes than watching all of thrice upon a time the evangelion film this is true um i would <laughs> like, i these would movies are so short i love it <laughs> he's he 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 learned from the grit he learned from like john fucking carpenter right you mm-hmm. no one needs more than 90 minutes if it's if it's more than 90 minutes it's too complicated right right says says the guy who just said how much he loved dune part one of two <laughs> maybe three uh, like, so I, I see the point, but like, we've also been, I think, oversensitized to this, right? Because like the lengths of films has just been ballooning, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but at the same time, I think, um, I, I can't speak for Ozu so much, but, um, Kurosawa liked his long movies. Well, he liked his short ones too. Like Throne of Blood is a minute, uh, an hour 49. Definitely like Rashomon's super short. Yeah. Rashomon's um, 90 minutes, I think. But yeah, he's also, you know, seven samurais, half a day. Ron, Ron is half a half day. A day. <laughs> High and low is longer than you think it's going to be every single time. But that movie yes, is perfect. Is. So an amazing film. It doesn't it doesn't matter. What's what's um, his his one that's Hamlet, which is the lawyers. Oh, it's oh, um man. I can't remember which one that is. Sorry. It's I keep wanting to say it's high and low, but it's not. That is another one that like like high and low is longer than you think it's going to be. But mm-hmm. unlike Redbeard, it doesn't just go by in a second <laughs> where it's like, I'm like, oh, that was three hours. That felt like 10 minutes. No, like those two films, high and low and the one that's based on Hamlet, they feel like two and a half hours. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, high and low is like, I mean, it's in the name pretty much that it's it's two different movies that are kind of just like grafted onto each other in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone should watch high and low. That movie's amazing. But the point that I was getting at in that digression about length um, and watching Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress back to back is that you will immediately notice the jump in quality in terms of animation. Like, yes, even though there's there's shots that are obviously like basically like still paintings that the characters are moving through. Those paintings are gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, like they're all these amazing scenes where it's like these tableaus that Chioko is like running or riding a horse or riding a car or a rickshaw. Right. Through. And it's just like, wow, 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 wow. Like everything is beautiful about this. Like I, I think part of the reason that I end up crying so much is that this movie is just so relentlessly beautiful. And so I'm like, not just overwhelmed by the story, but I'm overwhelmed by like how much work was put into making this thing look so good. It, it still looks, it looks better than the Evangelion rebuild movies. Mm -hmm. It it looks like, which is funny because the same people, many of the same people worked on them. We'll get into that too. I think now would be a good time to to get into the production stuff. We'll loop back. There's there's more points I want to make about Genya and fandom and whatnot, but we'll loop back around to that. Well, there's there's more points I want to I want to make about like how how the the level of attention to detail 
in in mm-hmm. this. But you're right. We can we can get around to that. So let's let's talk about the production of Millennium Actress. So not as exciting a story as the story of Perfect Blue. I'm afraid. No no earthquakes. That's for the best. <laughs> yeah. No uh nothing called total pervert. None of that. Basically, Khan comes off of Perfect Blue, and as we know, it's a hit. It's an international hit. People like it. Apparently, that doesn't save the studio from bankruptcy somehow. <laughs> um, but but Khan's got a got like a good thing going, and he knows it. So he originally wants to adapt Paprika with the people he did Perfect Blue with. Paprika, of course, is his last feature film. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. But he's approached by a producer called Taro Maki who loved Perfect Blue. Taro Maki may come up again in, in this series or, or this podcast, who knows, because he's done some other things that we might like. He's done Armitage Third, and uh, Ian, Taro Maki is the executive producer of Serial Experiments Lane. Uh, the, the lost what if for season two, but uh, real life conspired to not make that one happen. <laughs> Never say never. Um, and here's and here's where it comes back. Taramaki after this does Azumanga Daya. Aha, uh-huh, gotcha. Yes, and yes. He will he will do Cone's next film, Tokyo Godfathers. Uh, but he comes to Cone. He says, "I want to do something like Perfect Blue." And he says, "I want." He doesn't have an idea, but he says he wants to do something that's like a stereogram or a trompe l'oeil painting, something that's mm-hmm. different every time you look at it and uh, something that's so beautiful that it looks too real to be real. It's hyper real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cons down. He gets back together with Mirai, uh, Sadayuki Mirai, who wrote, he wrote Perfect Blue with uh, and who we covered in the last episode. And it, he, he doesn't know what he wants to, to do and it's Mirai who has the idea of them doing this celebration of Showa era Japanese film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here's here's where Khan's becoming like Ida, right? He's learning about this as he's making it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Like it, it, I think that helps sell the emotional reality of it. Like the freshness of because I feel like the thing that differentiates a movie like this from a lot of American movies that let me be blunt. The thing that separates this from Tarantino is that like, Oh, don't start with me. Okay. Go on, go on. Like, cause I just want to like make that clear. Cause I think that if, if a Western audience is like coming to this movie and being like, it's a movie that's like referencing a ton of older movies and you know, right. it's this like disaffected Gen X guy making it like the difference is Colin is not, trying to show off you know he's not trying to be like here's all this stuff i know about these movies right he's he's celebrating them he's not using them as like an intellectual cudgel to like show his pop culture bona fides you know what i mean sure i think he's also not trying to convince you to like it yeah right like that's that to me that's different. like tarantino shows his like deep references and he's like you should like this this is good Right. He's mm-hmm. a human recommendation engine. Cone is not that he's he's too sentimental, I think, to do that. Yeah. Like he doesn't there's no editorializing on whether any of the movies that he's referencing are good, except I guess just like the the sheer loving recreation of the throne of blood, which scene yeah. and yeah. The, the room itself is just like I just watched throne of blood last night again. 
also a perfect movie. Just like if you haven't seen that, what like go watch it. <laughs> it's so good. Um, that one, that sequence, the fact that like every single detail is just so perfectly recreated. Uh, even yeah. though the it's not like literally the story of uh, of Throne of Blood, but it's just like oh yeah, like this isn't an errant reference. Like this is a one made from um, real love and care. Sure. I mean that that whole sequel. Let's be honest. I think the whole movie looks good. We like all of it. Obviously, we said that. But I think I think the the first montage of in Chioko's memory, where there. Uh, Actually, I suppose it's the second one because it's when uh, Genya and Ida start showing up in in them as characters, right? That whole segment is to me the the, the just the most entertaining part of the film, certainly. Yeah. It in part because it, it is sort of like Colin being like, I could I could do Naruto, I could do this. <laughs> He's like, I I remember doing JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Look, this is a pretty good five minutes of a ninja movie, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah it is. Like the the, uh, the the classic like ninja turns into a piece of wood trick is pulled right. off with like absolute like nailed the timing on it. Like, yeah, he's right. got this like un- incredible little fight scene in a movie that right. is not an action movie at all. <laughs> right. But yes, continue with your points about the production. Well, I'll, I'll try and keep my uh, my shit talking of American directors to a minimum. No, no, no. I mean, talk shit. It's good. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. We're doing the same thing. The film it's changing our mental wavelengths, right? Because we're mm-hmm. flashing into the, into the present and then back into the past and we're oscillating. It's good. I'm into it, but because, uh, Khan has more money and this is part of like why it looks so good, right? Mm-hmm. He does hire some new animators mm-hmm. and these people, once again, Things I have learned while doing this series with you. All good anime was made by like 10 dudes. It's all the same <laughs> 10 people. Um, uh, he worked with his same character designer from uh, Perfect Blue, uh, Takeshi Honda, who's great. But he worked with a bunch of new people, too. Um, so the scene that's the disaster in the space movie set where she almost gets, like, impaled by the I-beam rubble, mm-hmm. right? Khan had a lot of trouble animating that. And so the guy he got to do that, the key animator for that sequence was Kenichi Konichi, uh, who was a key animator on, drumroll please, <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> of course. Of course he was. Same guys. It's the same guys. He's, this is our guy, I think. I think this is, a, you're in my guy, right? Because here's the, okay. here's the episodes he did. He he does the power out episode. Okay, already in the books as an alt-timer. He does the Kaoru episode. Holy shit. And he does the last one. So, this guy's like the Ryan Johnson uh of evangelion as ryan johnson is to breaking bad this guy is to evangelion when it comes to being key animator yeah get this he did not only that he was also animating princess mononoke the same year that he's doing millennium actress i wish the face i made made a noise just then but like that that's amazing i need the elastic sound of your jaw going boing yeah, my eyeballs just bounced out of my skull for a few seconds there. <laughs> this guy's great. So he'll also do Tokyo Godfathers. He'll do one of the Ava rebuilds. He does he does Ava 2.222. 2. 2. 
Um, someone had to. Someone had to. He keeps working with Cone. He becomes another one of those guys who's on every Ghibli movie. And he does one episode of Paranoia Agent. Spoilers in advance of as to which one? Uh, the fantasy element one. Like the, the one that's like the video game. The one that's the most like this movie in its uh in its structure. We'll get we'll get back to that. Yeah. But yes. It's <laughs> y- yes. And and also like abrupt stylistic change in the middle, which like makes sense which Ava things he did. His other key animator was a guy named Toshiyushi Inoue. I don't know what sequences Inoue did specifically. But uh, he worked on Akira. He did Ghost in the Shell. He knew Cone from Yojin Z. He did a series called Record of Lodos War that was a big deal. I've never seen it, but it's like... Never heard of it. So in the 90s, next to Berserk, the other big fantasy series was Record of Lodos War. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, put a pin in Berserk because that will be re- that'll be relevant to this episode as well. It, it will. Yep. Inoue also did two episodes of Evangelion. Which two? Kaoru in the last one. So him and this guy, I think they just knew. I think Konichi and Inoue just like knew one another. I think they yeah. just like had a thing. Maybe. Um, the, the coolest dudes on the planet as far as I'm concerned when it comes to this anime shit, man. They right. just killed it. They kill it. He'll stick with Kone too. He does Ava 333 and Thrice Upon a Time. So he, this he, guy, yeah, he did some of the, the, he did the better rebuild work of the two guys, but, uh, it's true. Um, he'll be back for, uh, also two episodes of paranoia agent. Well, I, I trust that you will bring that up when we discuss those episodes. I'm so. just going to say this. He does the first one and the last one. Oh shit. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. This yeah, guy. Okay. This guy. Um, <laughs> uh, so the guy who does the final earthquake scene is a guy named Shogo Furuya who worked on Ninja Scroll. So maybe he also did the Ninja sequence is my, this guy knows his knows from ninjas, right? Right. Um, becomes another Ghibli guy, but here's the more important thing about Furuya. The, uh, the motif of, of uh, Chioka running was his idea. So this is his movie basically. Cause this is yeah. as much as this is a movie about film. It's also a movie about running, running like, in a long skirt and how hard it is. Yeah. Like, one of the things that will stick out to you immediately is like how human the running motion is. Right. Um, how not Naruto it is, I guess is the best way to put it, <laughs> you know, like well, you could is... do it without like breaking without herniating a disc. Yeah. <laughs> right. Very flawed and human and exhausted looking running. Right. Uh, and we spend a lot of the movie watching Chiyoko move. And I think it gets to like one of the, Things like if we think about this movie as just like a movie about why we love movies, right? Motion is a huge part of that, you know. Like, what were the very first images that we put on film? It was like horses galloping, the horse, People, everyone's seen it, yeah, exactly. It's like just the the ability to capture motion, right? Is it's the whole thing, not to be pedantic, but motion picture, right. moving picture. That is animation. It is yeah. it is like the most basic thing you could you could do. As it turns out, Furuya was not good at drawing people running. <laughs> I learned this, by the way, because they, they they did do a 40 minute documentary on the making of Millennium Actress, and it's great. I it's mm-hmm. on YouTube, it's free. Highly recommend everybody watch it. There I wish there was such a thing for Perfect Blue. Um, I understand why there wasn't, but it's really good. You get a lot of con. He's like happy con, not like subliminally nasty con. Mm-hmm. Which is great. Like you can tell, he liked making this movie, right? 
Anyway, so Furuya suggests the running, but he's not good at drawing people running. So they get, the documentary just calls it one of Khan's associates in scare quotes. <laughs> Khan out on the town. <laughs> I, I think it's just his wife again. But like. I do they love just, the idea of just like Khan's associates being just like this horde of women that he can call. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe the Weinstein thing is is more appropriate than we know. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I, I don't think any of those bad things about Satoshi Khan. But they did like dress his wife up and have her run down the street. I'm saying his wife like I like I know. But they, they filmed her running down the street and like studied it. So like you can see five minutes of her just like in the clogs and the skirt like eh. <laughs> It's great to watch, actually. And the thing that inspired for you, by the way, was that is that he said that he saw that Khan was actively like chasing success in the movie business. So like mm-hmm. the, the movie is like also like he saw that it's about Khan too. Right? That like Chioko's sort of him also. Yeah. On, on this eternal pursuit. Which is cool. Um, that's again we'll get to that because that's basically the that is why this movie really makes me cry but right yeah right yeah i mean it's hard to be a creative and watch this movie and not like feel something right Mm -hmm. anyway um before we can get to that let's talk about the music because i think maybe like all these people this is the most important guy yes if we're th- like I, I'm going to continue to think about this season as like even though I love this movie, I love Perfect Blue, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika are pretty good. This this is like the surroundings in which we get to talk about Paranoia Agent, right? And you cannot talk about Paranoia Agent without talking about Mr. Susumu Hirasawa. <laughs> I wish you could see the face I just made. I like put my hands up and and like whistle. This fucking guy we will get to it with paranoia agent but if you if you are listening to this podcast and i don't know if you like watched the movie in the background or on mute or something or like walked away from it go listen to the chiyoko running song and try not to feel something (laughs) so susumu hirasawa is just one of these like deep music industry weirdos that like even if I'm, even if I wasn't into Satoshi Kon movies, which is how I found out about his music, I would have hoped that I would have come across this guy eventually because he's such an interesting story. So in the seventies, like a lot of very skilled musicians, he was in a progressive rock band called Mandrake who never, I think put out like one album that is like nowhere to be found. And right. most of their material has been released as like, basically like demo archives of like right. unreleased material like in the 90s so like around the time that perfect blue would have come out they're good by the way mandrake are a really good prog rock band uh you know it's going to be fire when you go to the youtube comments and they're all in japanese there's like no english comments on the uploads of the tracks so that's how you know it's like the real fuego obscure prog rock shit but mandrake didn't last very long And they quickly kind of transitioned into like a lot of progressive rock bands of the time. They became P model, Uh, basically like King Crimson and yes. And Genesis and many other progressive rock bands made the jump into new wave. Uh, And he's great at it. Like every other prog rock band. Yeah. It's like, this was the next step for the genre. This is why when people, when people tell me, Oh, punk killed prog. 
absolute bullshit. It is one of the stupidest meta narratives in pop music. It didn't kill Prague. It made Prague stronger uh, because everyone, I I, everyone either became a punk band like, like P model, or they became a pop band like Asia and ruled the charts for years. But that's not enough. Susumi Hirasawa has also put out a ton of uh, solo music. It is deeply strange uh, and kind of all over the place. Like I think by the time that he was, he started working with Khan, his style had sort of condensed into a bit more of this, like very synthy vocal chop, heavy kind of like sampled drums and like, like pseudo hip hop, but not really, it's not actually hip hop, but it's using all of the, the same techniques as hip hop. Right. If that makes sense. Along with this like very pad, very string, like orchestral, but all through these like cutting edge synth sounds in a way that makes a lot of his music sound pretty dated if we listen to it now, because it was so cutting edge at the time that you can hear the edge cutting, if that makes sense. Right, right. Um, but I kind of dig that, like as an aesthetic. Oh, totally. And he was also very much like a, in terms of tech, he's like an early adapter, an early adopter. He try he was doing a lot of really out there midi instruments like the sort of uh the like space controlling midi gloves like felt like that you can do filter sweeps with he was what? doing that before emojin heap was for example there's some really great live footage of just like him standing like ramrod straight alone on stage with like this army of synthesizers around him and he's actually only just moving his hands while singing and like changing the tracks it's wild uh he his studio is entirely solar powered um he what is he's just like a total weirdo in like the best way he's in the documentary <laughs> he's and you he, he is strange yeah. Like it is, it is very, very strange. I, I so think you, the closest like Western analog, I guess, would be Peter Gabriel, in that he went from being like singer in a super techie prog band to doing like weird eighties pop music to doing whatever the fuck they're doing now. <laughs> yeah, but that I think undersells just how out there uh, Hirasawa's stuff is in his solo career. But this is the perfect timing because my favorite Susumi Hirasawa record is uh, Philosopher's Propeller, which is the one that a lot of this movie's score comes from, including Run. They were making it at the at the same time. Word. That makes a lot of sense. I Okay, so you've backtrack. Bas- wait, hold on. So- Best guitar solo of all time, Susumi Hirasawa on An Expert Mountain. That's my favorite guitar solo, any genre. It's, I love it. Please go listen to it. I need to hear this then. I cuz my, my favorite guitar soloist is Adrian Ballou. I I bet these guys know one another. This seems like a guy oh. who like knew Adrian Ballou. Yes, that that would meeting of the minds for sure. Those Jesus two. Christ. Okay, so you've heard of this guy cuz I had not. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I, I just knew the music was good, but now I'm going to now I'm going to check out all of his stuff. I did find all of a lot of what you just set out, like while researching for this episode, because like I knew the soundtrack was great and I knew that paranoia agent soundtrack is absolutely fucking insane. And it makes sense that the guy who does the running theme 
and that the guy who does like the intro to Paranoid Agent are the same guy. Like that yeah. makes sense. Similar energy, very different like context. But I, wow. Well, then you've got something with in common with Satoshi Kon because he was a Hirasawa fanboy. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, he he courted Hirasawa to do this, and and um, I guess had a lot of difficulty with like his vision for the soundtrack was very different. But right, he he of course like learned to like it. But there's a bit of the documentary where he's like, you know, I would give him notes, and what came back, not that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would I would I I did tell people to put a pin in Berserk, and this is why right. uh, Susumi Hirasawa did do the score to the berserk anime which i haven't seen but a previous citation in this podcast of Jonas Serka did a very good episode on his youtube channel about the nietzschean undertones of the berserk anime so right similar if you like this podcast you'll probably like that too now i feel like i'm doing the tarantino thing of just telling people to like stuff this entire episode well okay well i'm i'm about to listen i know if, if you haven't got a recommendation for the original berserk yet here's here's just let me give you this first of all it's the best animated adaptation of berserk which i love and i'm terrified that it will never be finished but we will never cover on this podcast because it's the longest thing ever made and not a lot happens but the original berserk i haven't seen since i was probably in high school but the opening theme that Hirasawa does is amazing and does have its like own like YouTube life. I think it's I think it like is a thing people do on TikTok even is like crying to the berserk opening. Theme. <laughs> it, I believe it, it. Yeah. It also makes sense that he did that, too, because I like it's oh, here's this super gory like epic fantasy about fighting demons let's just have like the most uplifting but also sad synthy love song be the opening Mm -hmm. what the fuck this guy (laughs) true one of one one of one of one i don't even know what 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 more to say about how much i love the music um but i did learn some some other things about if we can leave music for a second but stay on the audio oh yeah things i learned about uh how they record the voices for uh, anime. The animation was finished before they uh, recorded the dialogue for this film, which Interesting. was not how they did it in perfect blue in, in perfect blue. They had sort of like music set to the storyboard, which is what I, that's like more common in, in like America, at least like that's how Pixar does it. And that's how Disney did it. I think. But I like it was watching the videos for the people recording the voices for this was very strange because they're like matching their lips to the rudimentary flaps. But the uh, actress who played Chiyoko from ages 20 to 40. So I think she's like she's middle Chiyoko. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, She did have this one little quote in the documentary that did like sum up why why I love this movie. She said, uh, this is a film filled with the director's love. Ain't that the truth? Ain't it the truth? You like Cohen seems like such a fucking happy guy when they're making this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do want to talk. Maybe now would be a good time for me to let's return to the idea of Chioko as Cone and the right. director's love. And like, again, this, 
the fundamental difference between this movie and uh and perfect blue which like so the way that you framed it early on i think is really useful is it's not just about like fame in and of itself or being a fan in and of itself it's about the conversation between those two things right, right. that relationship is shown as being like parasitic and toxic and destructive in perfect blue and it is shown in a completely different light in millennium actress sort of the basic like that this this kind of basic story beat that repeats endlessly throughout millennium actress is like genya rushing in to save chiyoko without expecting anything in return right uh just so that she can keep going on the journey that she's going on and he often engages in these sort of like asymmetrical conversations with her where like right. he'll start talking to her and she's already like bolted off to the next movie while he's like living out the fantasy of you know being the blind swordsman or being the, the rickshaw man or whatever right and I thought that was such a profoundly human way of it's such a more positive way of showing the like asymmetrical parasocial relationship we have with people who are famous in comparison to perfect blue, right? Like we have in perfect blue, we have me mania talking to the pictures of uh, Mima that he has up on his wall and imagines right. them talking back to him, you know? Or having delusions of it. Like, it, 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 it may be, like, even more than, like, imagining, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not clear what's a fantasy and, and what's a psychotic issue. Whereas, like, in, in, in Millennium Actress, like, it's it's not a psychosis. It's not a psychosis. It's, it's memory itself. It's nostalgia. Right? Mm-hmm. And that is, that's what it's like to be a fan of something, I think, to some degree. Like... We talk, we like, we watch the movies that we like to watch and then we continue to have a conversation with them that they cannot respond to. Like we see some, we see an artist that we like and they make something and then they move on to the next thing. And we have this conversation with the thing that they made and with our idea of them that they, they are not privy to. And it's like. The, the that story beat that keeps happening over and over and over again is like whether the artist is able to respond to it or not they are constantly being pushed forward towards their ultimate goal by like the perfect fan in some way like the idealized fan the fan who right. expects nothing in return but just wants the artist to keep going you know right. that's that's genya he doesn't like there's definitely like insinuations that he's got a crush that he like does love Chiyoko, but he's not undone by his horniness or anything, you know? Right. His love is for her as an actress and he, he wants her to keep making great work because that's what she's great at. And, and that's, that gives meaning both to his life and to her life. And, that that's really beautiful. (laughs) It's a really beautiful idea of like the fan is like the person who's going to keep pushing the artist, even when there doesn't appear to be hope to encourage them on their relentless pursuit of what cannot be captured, which is like, you know, if you make art, you're, you're never satisfied. You're always going to be like running up against some imperfection in the last thing you made or some inability to get get out exactly what you mean. 
And that's like the moment that like truly cracks me open uh, and like lets all the tears come out is when Genya is when it's it returns to the space, the sci fi story. Right. And the bookend story. Yeah. And Chiyoko's about to get into the spaceship and Genya says like, no, don't go. Because it's like very clear that the spaceship is like the metaphor for leaving life behind. You right. Know? Well, of course, she was born during an earthquake, right? It's this it's this weird. The earthquake is an interesting, like recurring motif. Yeah. It's interesting, especially in light of the fact that there was an earthquake that was so damaging or like foundational to the birth of perfect blue. Right. That like it, it becomes the it's the marker of like life changes. Right. Uh, for for uh, Chiyoko, she she's born on an earthquake. She leaves her profession on an earthquake and then ultimately she dies during an earthquake. Mm -hmm. I will try not to cry while I say this, but when Shioko gets into the spaceship for the last time and Genya is saying, like, don't go, I can't help but feel like I'm watching Khan leave, you know? Yeah. Like, Genya is, he's he's cone but he's also us like we're right. literally the two guys tracking down cone in this podcast and like trying to like right live this guy's body of work and like make it all make sense makes sense <laughs> and we have to return to this image of him just being like i've got to go right <laughs> and it like really fucks me up i'm sorry it yeah just, it makes me so emotional because it is it's just like what a beautiful send off and it's not something of course he would never would have thought that that's the thing that he's making when he's making but it's like you have to let people go at some point it's just really powerful i'm sorry it 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 is but it's also that we're also genya but as we've said chiyoko is in a way also cone that's why we feel emotional when when she blasts off and when she and and, and when the character passes away even though she's obviously had a very full complete life that has mm-hmm. this weird incompleteness in the middle of it. Um, and I can, I can relate to that. I think a lot of people can. Right. And, and um, it's cool that someone could make a movie about like squaring that circle in yourself and, and finding something gorgeous in it, um, mm-hmm. which makes it all the sadder that, that cone's gone. Um, even though I know that I, I, between the two of us, I critique him more. I'm more of the Ida in this series for, mm-hmm. for you and me. Right. But I, but I also have felt Ida's arc too. I, you know, we're not done talking about it, but now that I've rewatched so much of Khan's stuff, I've done the same thing. Like, Oh, that's right. Dude could make a fucking movie. <laughs> he really fucking could. <laughs> I forgot though. Right. And it, yeah. it, 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 I have become less jaded while watching it. Right. And maybe like least of like, I've become the most less, jaded does that even make sense the <laughs> my reduction in jadedness has been at its steepest when watching this movie mm-hmm. because it's it's not jaded it's not edgy which is funny because like it's i cone doesn't just leave at the end of his career but like this cone leaves in this movie and and that makes me sad too yeah. You know, it's like after he, it's like he got it like all out of his system in one burst 
and I love it for that. But like, it's so sweet, and I'm gonna miss that. I think if we're being looking at all four of Cohen's films, they're all so different. And it's really just that paranoia agent is like the doubling for specifically perfect blue. Right. Uh, And like it contains elements of the other ones for sure. And we'll touch on all of them, like all of the intersecting repeating images and concepts that like we've, we've done it in this, the, this episode and it'll continue to happen as we go on. Like all these things will compound, but you're right. Like every single one of these movies feels like you could have had like three movies in each of these registers. Right. And we're only going to get one of each. Uh, and it just so happens that these first two are about as perfect a movie in these two registers as could exist. In yeah. My opinion. Yeah. No, I I agree. It is circling back to what you said earlier. It does seem kind of Oscar Beatty, right? Um, like I think like the artist is the the worst possible Western version of this kind of thing. It's like love letter to cinema past. Like, don't we love the movies, folks? You know, like that kind of thing. It's not that. It is that, but it's also not right. He successfully skirts the ir- the the essential irritation of making movies about making movies. It's fascinating because this movie came out in the same year as Mulholland Drive. And I almost feel like Mulholland Drive is like the child of this movie in Perfect Blue. <laughs> oh, I've never thought of that before, but that where's Logan when you need her? <laughs> yeah, that 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 is a that I, I see exactly where you're coming from with 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 that, you know, um, and, and there's even a key in both of them. It's like right. as the central MacGuffin of both movies. <laughs> this movie, I was going to say, has to me has like almost like the Shakespeare glow or not the Shakespeare glow. Jesus Christ. The Spielberg glow. Yeah. You had you know too much I, throne of blood on the mind when you said that. Oh my God. Uh, or, or maybe I just think too highly of Steven Spielberg. That's not entirely <laughs> true. Um, but I, I, I do, I do love a lot of the man's work like Cone, guy who came out of the gate real hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, but th- this, this movie does have that, that glow in a way that um, even I love Miyazaki movies, but even Miyazaki movies, I think don't quite have that like perfect, warm hearted, digestible, feel good spark. Yeah. I think people think that Miyazaki movies have those, but they actually don't (laughs) like, right. And that's what makes Miyazaki movies interesting. And like the reception to them, very puzzling. Right. Um, Like people are like, Oh, these movies, I just want to like cuddle up and, in a Miyazaki movie and eat this wonderful food. And it's like people like the worlds of those Miyazaki movies are fucked up. Like they're right. not good places to live. I think I, I can feel you transitioning towards something. If I, if I'm understanding the the meta game that you're playing here, I think it's really interesting that this movie came out the same year as spirited away. Mm-hmm. Um, Cone is is younger than Miyazaki, but since we're comparing them here, I think this is his most Miyazaki-like film also in some ways, at least in in the sense that it's sort of like about this benign young girl's journey into womanhood in a sense, right? This is sort of like the year that like anime has its big respect me as art Hollywood year, right? They, I think this is maybe the first Academy Award for best animated film and they give it to Miyazaki, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, Which is funny because any other year 
this should have should have gotten that. You'd think this movie would have would have like done opened the gates for Cone here the way that it seemed to do for Miyazaki and it doesn't. Which is maybe that's why I think he does get darker after this. Mm-hmm. I think I think maybe that like irritates him. Right. Like um, he's never going to throw a better fastball to the Academy Awards than this movie. And they they went with the one that had better industry connects, basically. I mean, also a great movie. Like, I'm not trying to talk shit about Spirited yeah. Away. I also love like, Spirited Away. Spirited Away is amazing. That movie is wonderful. But, yeah, like, Miyazaki already had the Disney connection, you know? And, like, right. sure, he did the absolutely just, like, testicles on the table move of sending Disney a sword that said no cuts. No cuts. Like, but you're, yeah, it's like people, the American audience was already familiar with Miyazaki and the American filmmaking audience in particular was already much more comfortable with Miyazaki because of the Disney connection, because of the movies that were ported over with like famous people doing the voice acting. Whereas like Colin, you know, I think this is a better movie than spirited away personally. It's a, it's a, it's a like apples and oranges kind of thing, but just like, yeah, it's a, it is an apples and oranges kind of, kind of thing because this is both like people working at the height, I think like at the height of their powers Mm -hmm. to me, but like, you know, uh, spirited away is this, is this more family, family friendly, even though this is like Cohen's like least bloody, least violent film it is still sort of like cerebral and like aimed at adults right whereas like spirited away has has like a little bit of the fur kidsness to it and also it's, it's told got the, in a much more conventional way for right. sure like you kind of have to like be your wits about you when watching millennium actress just to keep up with like is it real is it not is it what level of the movie are we in you know like it is it's not treating you like a child that's for sure right Right. And I will say it, it that's the other thing is like we you know we said in perfect blue that Satoshi Khan deploys his superpower for the first time. And his superpower is the editing room, right? Mm-hmm. That's at his the stand. Same, that's his stand is is the editing bay. Um at the same time, I I don't think his stand can quite stop time until this movie. Like I like I like Perfect Blue, but like those montages at the end and this is why I have trouble writing the outlines for them. Yeah. They're complicated and kind of sweaty, like in perfect blue, like by the end where she's like breaking the teacup and there's the blood in her hands and the weird cut to like, was she in the TV series the whole time? And her being an idol is her imagination for five seconds. Like it's really sweaty. Yeah. Intentionally. So I think like the, the movie is it's a sweaty, stressful experience, but the fact that he's able to take all of that and then tell this like beautiful story about aging and film and right. the purpose of making art with like right. none of the fuck you to the audience that perfect blue has is like, it's astounding. Like to be able to use your, your skills uh, that are so specifically yours to such different ends. Right. I, I it's going to be interesting to me. So as we're recording this, I've not yet rewatched Paprika. Mm-hmm. I I remember essentially like none of it. Like I remember it being like visually amazing, but I, I I basically don't even recall the plot. 
So, but I, I think that might be the only other time, and I'm going to need to come back and check, that, like, I think Cone uses the editing transition from scene to scene power this well. It happens in Tokyo Godfathers, but less. Tokyo mm-hmm. Godfathers is, like, way more in reality, right? Yeah, yeah. And... Paranoia Agent does it, but Paranoia Agent is, it does it in different ways and not for a sustained length of time at any one time. He does little bursts. Right. It's a TV show, so it, it just has to move at a different pace. This is, you're right. This is like the high level, let me do it for a full movie right. version of his skill set. Paprika, it, he's already kind of like finding a new twist on how he can use that editing by Paprika, where like it's less about the cut and more about like the the filter sweep, I guess. <laughs> um, the the way right. he's it's it's we'll get there when we get there. But you're right, you're right to single this out as like the pinnacle of a certain kind of thing that Colin was doing, and that I, and that I don't really think anyone else does. I, I've <laughs> yeah. I've not seen another. There's almost nothing that gives me the way that Khan's editing feels the way it does in this movie. The only like thing that I can compare it to, and this isn't even animated and this isn't even Japanese. The only thing that I can compare it to in a weird way is um, Scott Pilgrim versus the universe, which is like a, a less good movie, but like the way Edgar Wright thinks about like transitioning from, from scene to scene and transitioning from like, one person's subjective experience of reality versus objective reality and telescoping back and forth again. That's the only other thing I can think of that does this trick this smoothly. And it is more impressive here. Yeah. I think that like, that's something that happens in a lot. Edgar Wright's movies are also very much like based around his ed of the edits. Uh, right. Like, I think about like the tequila shootout from baby driver. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like the only really good scene in that whole movie, if you ask me. Where like, and in general, like I think Edgar Wright's whole thing is similarly like trying to plant the the feeling of the movie in the experience of his characters. So like when the characters are scared, the movies feel like horror movies. When they're feeling badass, suddenly they look like Michael Bay movies, etc. Right. It's just with Scott Pilgrim, he does that. And also brings in like all of the uh, aesthetic touch points of like video games and comic books and, and stuff like that. that. Exactly. Gives gives it another like leg up in terms of being able to heighten that in the way that Millennium Actress does, for example. Right. It was, it was funny. I also just saw his Sparks documentary. Uh-huh. How was which that? Which is fantastic. It's uh-huh. And and I'm like, I have mixed feelings on Edgar Wright, though, like there's things, obviously he's done things I, I love or like elements of things that I, that I adore. But like the Sparks documentary is really great. But it was interesting thinking, like watching the Sparks documentary and then thinking about this movie, because one of the other like remarkably good things about Millennium Actress is it does also feel like a very well done, but coherent biopic of a movie star. Sure. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like it's, it's structured it's structured like here was their life and then they lost the love of their life then tragedy and healing through art and one <laughs> bad marriage with a guy who made his key grip look for a key that he knew wasn't there and that right, key right. grip went on to be me <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah 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 is there anything else we want to hit before we uh 
close this up. I feel like did we talk about the reception to your satisfaction already, or do you want to get into that more? No, I mean, I think it's. I the only thing is like it's it's worth saying that like while like people loved Millennium Actress, it was like very critically well received and and still is a like a well regarded movie. It did not do what I think a lot of people expected the guy who directed Perfect Blue to do. Especially mm-hmm. when you come to him and the way you begin the project is I want to do Perfect Blue but happier. <laughs> right? Like smiling it, and like, w- louder and with your mouth open. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> feel feel good. It's gonna be it's, we're gonna have a funny little little man be the main character and uh this just wonderful wholesome woman. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just going to be the movie. But do the thing you did before. Right. That it, it sounds like straight down the middle. As we've said, this movie just seems so straight down. The, I can't think of another movie where I've like seen it. I'm like, why was this not like a world beater? Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. But it wasn't. It was uh, it was not. Obviously, Cohen got to keep working. He got to keep working with a lot of these same incredibly talented people. Um, but it did not do it did not do at least in America what they what what I think people expected it to do. I think people thought this would make him and Miyazaki like equals. Yeah. Uh, clearly did not. And I think in some senses, like the next two things that he did are very much interested in. Like Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress feel like like major works. You know what I mean? Right. They're like these. clearly identifiable like genre melodrama bio like biopic of a person that isn't real and like you know psycho thriller like broad popular strokes right from here on out he gets much more interested in minor stories and i think ultimately for the best but the movies that he makes from here on out, while I think they build on everything that have, were done in these first two films, absolutely are, are starting to go into a much like less like still crowd pleasing in their own way. Do, do you feel like what do you see what I'm dancing around here? Like there's a kind of sense dancing. of like de-escalated. He's, th- he's starting to throw more like change ups rather than fastballs from here on. Out. Right. We can't. Some That's true. Stylistically, he also be, he turns his lens away from um, the the privilege of fame. Mm-hmm. He this that is like a major change that I think follows the rest of his career is like there's I don't think there's going to be any more. Paprika is sort of its own thing, let's say. Right. Because Paprika is a slight return. But like at least for Paranoia Agent and Tokyo Godfathers, he is not interested in beautiful, talented women who have at admirers who right. may have problems right now he's just interested in like people who have problems and and all of the varieties of people that have problems yeah and a lot of varieties of problems some of them are very entertaining problems some are problems that kind of bug the shit out of me um <laughs> and i i see why he went there i you know as i've alluded to i think he uses up a lot of his good feeling Mm-hmm. on this movie um even though like in its own way i think tokyo godfathers is also a very straight pitch in some ways mm-hmm. it's just i'm also 
in the same way that I'm trying to struggling to think of a director who had a height like Millennium Actress, I'm trying to think of a director who like hobbled on, like did like a weird sidestep on movie three, the way <laughs> Cohn does after that. Like this is a weird left turn for this guy. It totally is. I think like the David Lynch analogy that I've often used is Tokyo Godfathers is his straight story in that it's like the one that people don't talk about and it's the one that is very much against type. We can't just start watching it, but I'm going to say like it after watching Millennium Actress, it does kind of make a kind of sense. It like that movie still does have some of this weird. He's aiming for like the 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 Amblin entertainmentness again <laughs> yeah. in some ways. I'm glad he stops aiming for that. Uh <laughs> even though I like Tokyo Godfathers but this is like I'm trying to think of someone who 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 hobbled like I mean David Lynch is an option but in a way you mentioned Tarantino before I think maybe Tokyo Godfathers is more like his Jackie Brown yeah no I I could I could see that in that like a little too long a little like whoa why do this mm -hmm. well I I mean I talked shit on Tarantino before, but Jackie Brown, I really like that movie. And I also really like Tokyo Godfathers. So you really like Tokyo Godfathers. Okay. We're, I I like it. I don't maybe really like it is, is too strong. I I think it is a good movie. Um, it is very much like not the movie I signed up to do this season to talk about. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. It's It's not, it's not the movie I signed up to watch anime to watch. (laughs) in some ways but maybe that's exactly why he made it right yeah that makes a lot of sense it feels like now we're we're ready to talk about the next movie i just i just want to say like few have ever put together a one-two punch like perfect balloon millennium actress and if he never did anything again he would already be a legend in my book for these two movies back to back i am up if he'd retired after this movie, it would have been like if Jay-Z actually stayed retired after the Black Album. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> but it took him like six albums and the first three no one remembers. Uh, <laughs> even though that's his best shit. But yeah, I mean, if 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 he'd been struck by lightning, God rest his soul, he would have left behind a pretty fucking flawless filmography. It's still really good. But I don't think I'm going to be this happy again for the rest of the season, except for maybe during Paranoia. There's some parts of Paranoia Gen that are going to make me really happy. But like this movie makes me happy the way the wedding episode in Evangelion makes me happy, where I'm like, this is just fucking perfect. Right. It's so good. It is. It makes me want to go and like catch up on more old Japanese movies that I haven't seen. Like the fact that like doing this podcast was like, man, I got to watch some more Ozu just to like even begin to have this conversation makes me so happy because now it's like, well, now I got to watch all of this Ozu that I haven't seen. (laughs) I'm going to make a confession to you. I can't believe we've made it this deep into the episode without me saying this. I've never seen an Ozu film. Oh, man. I just watched late spring this morning and uh it's it's really good it's really really good uh also not that long i i think you can i think you can dive like i'm that's a good place to start is all i'm trying to say and it's a good place to start okay i i know it's that or tokyo story and i know people love ozu it's just one of those things that like took me 
I, it's just been one of those things that's like on the list. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. My list is my list is very long. Ozu's on there. I'm trying to think of who else. He's probably he's next in line. I got to do it. Mm-hmm. I know I got to do it. Uh, and I think it's I think it's going to happen because I like the references to it in this. I also need to revisit some Kurosawa's because yeah. like I did I did the Kurosawa thing in my early 20s <laughs> and then I've largely left it largely left it behind even though I still like think of all those films very very fondly there's tons that I haven't seen the guy put out a, a fuckload of movies and like every single one of them that I've seen is good some of them are too long but yeah I think that's about I think that's about right I, if he's if Kurosawa did bad movies I haven't seen them I mm-hmm. haven't seen Kagamusha, which I, I understand is like hard yeah, it's rough. It's it's like a shorter Ron, like stylistic, like color wise. And it's cool. Like it does the Kurosawa thing of like, how many dudes can I put on screen at one time in as many sequences as possible, which is just like, it's just exciting to see someone do that. But right, it's not my favorite, but it's worth watching anyway. Well, surprise Kurosawa. If you're Stoshi Khan, it would be an infinite number because you could just animate them, you could just <laughs> animate your horsemen. And you wouldn't have to actually uh, shoot people with blunt arrows to make them scared. <laughs> That's how Toshiro Mufune, truly a <laughs> god of cinema. He was a real one. So, like, yeah, this movie just has me in the mood to talk about movies all day. It is such a delight. I'm so glad we got to talk about Millennium Actress. I don't know how much more I have to say about it. No. Uh, yeah. Thank I, you for joining us on this one. Tokyo Godfather's next time. And uh, sweet dreams. 